pressing play now. Any jokes you want to make about the, the Protestants? Not at the moment. Just their Reformation. Super boring. <laughs> I just can't get over it. The number of times teachers have tried to get me to care. What have you learned about the Protestant Reformation? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Not a single thing? You guys talked about the Protestant Reformation on this podcast. See, Eamon listens. I would make a joke about Catholics, but I'd be racked my guilt for weeks. Welcome to, uh, uh, You Should Care About This, a podcast where Are I... you sure it's not you could? I'm, uh, but... I feel like I advocated for that, because I don't want people to have to care. <clears throat> Welcome to You Should Care About This, a podcast where I, John, try to convince... Me, Aaron, about history, but to, to often care, I don't care. To care about it, yeah. I think you're going to care about this one, though. You ready to care about this one? So ready, let's go. All right, all right, all right. First, let's talk about the Catholic Church. Yes! There's this famous line that gets used about the difference between being Protestant and being Catholic in the United States, which which is Protestants came over on the decks of the Mayflower, Catholics came over in steerage in the 19th century. In steerage? Steerage. Steerage, oh, the bottom oh. of the ship. Okay, that makes more sense. Okay, so that didn't work very well. So the time, the time period is the end of the 19th century. Okay. Uh, there are all these debates in the Catholic Church and the Catholic communities over assimilation or acculturation, adopting some of the local culture. Uh, they did this study in 1888, and in Pittsburgh in 1888, 60% of Protestants, <laughs> thank you, dog, 60% of Protestants were capitalist, were part of the capitalist-owning class. Yes. Which means the very, very, very wealthy church. Yes. Whereas only 10% of the Protestants were part of the working class. The vast, vast, vast majority of the working class was Catholic. Uh, today's episode, we're going to talk about Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day is born in 1897. Her dad is a sports journalist. I didn't know that. Yeah, fun fact. So she grows up in uh, Southside Chicago. And as she's growing up, there's this very, very famous socialist journalist writing about Southside Chicago, writing specifically about the meatpacking plants in Southside Chicago. Yes. And that person's name is? The Jungle. Tell us about The Jungle. What's his name? Upton Orson Welles. <laughs> no, Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair. Who's Orson Welles? Uh, Citizen Kane. Oh. Uh, anyway, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, which is about the way that the immigrant community was treated and was accidentally taken to just be more about animal rights. Whoops. But it was meant to be about workers' rights. Yeah, yeah. His famous line is, I tried to hit America in the heart and I missed and hit her in the gut. So she grows up reading Upton Sinclair and wandering around the South Side, uh, seeking out this community that she reads about and, and, and trying to understand this, this community. She doesn't grow up Catholic. Um, but uh, after she finishes high school, she moves to Greenwich Village in New York City. She gets married, doesn't go very well. Uh, she has abor an abortion at one point. She writes a novel. It's not very good. She has a daughter, and then she becomes Catholic. Yes. Okay. So this brings us to her back to the Catholic Church. This is that's the first twenty some years of Dorothy Day's life. Yes. Great. But Dorothy Day is here. this leftist writer, journalist, progressive person um, living in New York City, early twentieth century, um, and she is becoming interested in the Catholic Church. Um, she's becoming interested in, in spirituality. This is at this point where the Catholic Church 
is sort of in this quandary about how much do we assimilate, how much do our people assimilate with American capitalism. The leadership is very clear they don't want to be Marxists. They don't want to be part of uh, any communist party or the international workers of the world, the sort of radical left unions, um, because those unions are pretty and those organizations are pretty anti-religious. Catholics are trying to, Catholic leadership is trying to chart this complicated course where a lot of their members are working in factories or in coal mines and they want to be part of radical unions uh, and they want better pay and, and shorter hours and better working conditions. So the Catholics are trying to chart this course of like, how do we get involved in unionism and be sort of moderate and be a moderating force within unions as opposed to a radical abolish capitalism force. Um, and that's sort of the state of Catholicism in the 1910s and 20s is that most Catholics are um, engaged in actually some like really radical form of action, um, but their leadership is telling them, eh, you can't really be Catholic and be a Marxist, despite the large number of Catholic Marxists in the working class. So Dorothy Day in her late 20s, early 30s becomes Catholic, and she's still pretty indifferent is a generous word towards the church. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like the Catholic Church. She likes being Catholic and is not really sure about the church. In the early 1930s, she meets this guy named Peter Marin. Yes. Peter Marin is fucking bananas as a human being. He's a very short Frenchman who uh, will just corner you in a room and yell at you about his anarchist vision for society in an incredibly, incredibly hard to understand uh, French accent. Mm-hmm. And he will just do it until you escape. So he's really good at parties. Yeah. Popular. Um, he would also just do this on the street corner. And people would stand around and watch him, but mostly because they couldn't figure out what he was saying. Because of, again, the strong French accent and the yelling. So this is Peter Marin. I didn't realize he was French. Quite French. 100% French. French peasant. Okay. So... Uh, she meets Peter Marin, and, and Peter Marin has this sort of like three-point platform of forming houses of hospitality and radical study and um, rural, like, anarcho-communist farms to support the whole project. Yes. And they are living in New York City, and they open this uh, house of hospitality where, like, people are coming in and out, and, like, poor folks are coming for food, but also just, like, lots of artists are coming through. And then on May Day, 1933, mm-hmm. they start uh, <laughs> a newspaper. The Catholic Worker. The Catholic Worker. They start selling on a May Day, 1933, um, like out in Union Square in Manhattan. And by November of that year, they're printing 20,000 copies. Boom. By May of 1935, they're printing 60,000 copies. By 1940, they're printing 185,000 copies. It just It just blows up. This idea of there being a radical, intellectual, Catholic voice that's expressing support for unions, that's expressing support for radical politics, and doing so from a deeply rooted Catholic position. And they're really excited by this vision of a house of hospitality. Do you want to explain what a house of hospitality is? It's what it sounds like. It's a place where you can go and get hospitality if you need a place to stay. Aaron lived for a while on the Catholic Worker. Uh, because, yeah, no, it's better if he starts. <laughs> Aaron, get back here. 
Can you explain your childhood? But you gotta get close. Okay, I mean, not like a therapy session, just like on a podcast. <laughs> so, explain my childhood. So, Amy, who you grew up in a Catholic worker. Uh, in the early 90s, my folks um, met at a Worcester Catholic worker, and they decided they wanted to get married and start their own. Um, my mom's from Hartford, Connecticut, uh, which is a, a pretty deeply segregated city and um, a deeply impoverished city. Uh, so they found a church in the north end of Hartford, which had a pretty radical priest living at it, uh, Father Al, and they used that as kind of a focal point and started searching out for a, a place to start the community. Uh, met uh, another parishioner at the church named Brian and uh, some other invested parties. Uh, they committed, they bought a house, and then everyone but them and Brian left, because that's how commitment works. They, they uh, started a family and raised me and my brother in that community. Uh, along with a variety of house guests over the course of my life, and uh, yeah. That's... So, would would you want to define what a house of hospitality is, or like what the work of this community was? Um, so, most Catholic workers uh, do do direct aid functions like soup kitchens, uh, furniture pantries, food pantries, um, and hospitality, which uh, varies from place to place. Uh, the New York Catholic worker um, is way way better at uh, housing uh, immediate need people. Uh, a house like ours in Hartford was, uh, was more equipped for uh, longer term housing uh, on a less immediate need basis. Um, so usually getting uh, folks through uh, references, uh, people in the community that knew we could house them. Um, but still on occasion, folks needing a place for one night or two nights, um, yeah. It was, it was like living in a hotel that was for free. That's how I would tell people about it when I was a kid. The main thing that you guys did was childcare. Yeah, but the main thing ours did was childcare, but we're somewhat unique in that fashion. I don't know of other Catholic workers that do childcare. But I, isn't that because of the because that was the community's need? And yeah. And so you're supposed it, to go into the community and figure out what the... Right. And people just started dropping their kids off at the house for longer and longer periods of time, and then there were more and more kids. And now there's a big-ass after-school program there. And so then I moved in to the Catholic Worker with Eamon in 2016. Yeah, in 2016 and was there until 2018. Okay. Um, as uh, Dorothy was circulating her newspaper and, and meeting more people and, and growing this community, um, she realized that the need far surpassed what they had available and far surpassed what the church uh, had what the church had made available and what, and uh, fell far short of what the church could be making available. Um, and the, the uh, embodying the works of mercy became uh, the, uh, the primary goal, and you can't accomplish those without forming the relationships necessary. Um, I think one of her quotes is something along the lines of, um, uh, we, need to, we need to know the poor to save them, but first we must get close enough to love them. Or something along those lines. So, like, in, in, in our community, um, the segregation was such that it wasn't it wasn't just abnormal for, for us to be living there because we were the only white folks in the neighborhood. Uh, it was abnormal for us to be living there because of the economic options we had that uh, could have gotten us out of the neighborhood had we so chosen. Um, yeah.
like I said, the, the in the 1930s, the paper is blowing up. This actual space of the House of Hospitality in New York City is blowing up. Um, and uh, other people will start sending letters in to this House of Hospitality saying, how do we get involved? Um, and so what they do is they say, let's get all the letters together from St. Louis and send everyone each other's addresses. Mm-hmm. Let's get everyone to get everyone's letters from Chicago and tell everyone about each other. So stop bothering us, go bother each other. And so this is how we end up with a, a dispersed movement of Catholic workers all the way across the country. Uh, and so some of these Catholic workers get really large. At one point in 1930, St. Louis Catholic worker was feeding 2,700 people a day. Um, wow. Some of these places had support from their local Catholic leadership. So Pittsburgh, Chicago, Seattle had that. Uh, L.A. and Philly and Boston, other places did not. So there's this split, both in like how radical are the Catholic workers, but also how radical is the local Catholic leadership. Um, and some Catholic workers are are really involved in the union movement in the 1930s. They're helping to organize strikes, and they're showing up in the picket lines. They're getting involved in fights with cops. Um, they What ends up happening, though, is they get in, in trouble with Catholic leadership and politically for supporting the Child Labor Amendment in 1935. Have you heard of the Child Labor Amendment? No. No, because it did not become a constitutional amendment. But there was a constitutional amendment proposed that would ban child labor in this country. What a horrible, horrible idea. Yeah, I'm so glad that... And it was only eight states short of being a constitutional amendment. Why was the Catholic Church opposed? Oh, I couldn't tell you why. Builds character. Rich people didn't like it. I don't have to tell you. It's almost it's almost like money buys influence even in churches. Because of this experience getting sort of shut down for their support for the child labor amendment, getting getting pushed around for that, and also just um, some fights about, you know, are we primarily about providing immediate need to people in need of housing and food, or are we really engaged in long-term organizing? The Catholic workers, by and large, pull back a little bit from union organizing. And, but the big thing that really rocks the Catholic worker movement early on is World War II. So there's this split in 1940 over pacifism that Dorothy Day and others are coming out very in favor of a commitment to pacifism. And it's really complicated at this time period because a lot of pacifists in the United States are pro-Nazi. Because the argument for staying out of war is staying out of war with the Nazis. Oh. The, the argument on the left in favor of war is we've got to kill Nazis. We've got to fight fascism. Um, that may come from, and that comes from left involvement in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, where people are going off to Spain to fight a Nazi-funded fascist military takeover, Franco. Um, so there's a split over fa- over pacifism in 1940. The Chicago Catholic Worker quits the Catholic Worker movement, founds their own newspaper because they are arguing against pacifism. So they didn't used to have their own newspapers before this? It was all just the Catholic Worker. Okay. Uh, and then after Pearl Harbor, <coughs> when most Catholic workers are still advocating for pacifism, the paper lost 100,000 subscribers. And by 1943, there are only 10 houses left. That's so significant. It's massively shrunk and redefines itself a lot and becomes 
an organization or not an organization, but a movement really committed to direct service and direct aid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So the Catholic worker movement continues out of the 1940s, 1950s. It expands again in the 1960s and 70s with the growth of the left. They grow more uh, rural Catholic workers who are doing this agrarian anarcho-communist vision. So the Catholic worker movement, so Dorothy Day dies in 1980. Yes. Um, and at that point has spent her entire life her entire adult life in this in this movement, building up a network of Catholic workers that run independently, um, but that are connected by this shared ideology and this uh, belief in the in the vision of, of the Catholic worker. The works of mercy. Works of mercy, uh, and there's this one of the sort of first books that's written about the Catholic worker is called Breaking Bread, and in the conclusion, the author says. It was at once a social and political movement, a utopian experiment, and a force for change within American Catholicism. But ultimately, it fails in all these points because the Catholic worker was primarily a movement of spiritual transformation. But one way that I see yeah. that resonating in our in the experience that I had is a lot of the work in terms of like um, educating the ignorant was more than just the newspaper but it was because Hartford is such a segregated city it was bringing people who would never go to the north end and like giving them an actual like community to connect with and showing them human beings and and like just giving them a place to like interact with children and do homework and play basketball and so in many ways the the spiritual transfer like the actual like a lot of the work the actual work for me was not the playing with the kids. It was getting along with the volunteers. Yeah. Um, who were coming in and d doing their best. And that was often <laughs> frustrating still. That was an understatement. It was so frustrating. And, you know, it was a great opportunity for some people to come and get their community service hours for high school. And so sometimes they wouldn't necessarily come in like, come yeah, come in with, with all their intentions in the right spot. So they would just come in to get a paper signed and sometimes we get really cool people who would just like play basketball in 90 degree heat and 100 degree 100 percent humidity for five hours yeah what did you learn today today i learned that my brain can function until 9 45 and um i learned that dorothy day's father was a sports journalist i didn't know that uh -huh. um i learned that peter morin was French. I didn't know that either. We talked about some things I actually knew about, which was a nice change of pace, but meant that I had less jokes. It's true. I should have um, brought more jokes. Sorry, it's not about me. Go ahead. It's never about you, John. It's my podcast. As, but we talked about how the Catholic worker movement was created by Dorothy Day and still continues today. And sometimes you get to meet cool kids and sometimes you get to meet volunteers who are frustrating. All of them are part of the kingdom of God. And all of them are part of the kingdom of God. So I I learned, I don't know, what I learned in researching this was just like how many different iterations of the Catholic worker there are and how um, like a, a, a movement really, really dedicated to just being with people can 
be so many different things and inspire so many different things. Um, so there's the radical, like, labor organizing Catholic worker, and there's the, like, agrarian anarchist utopia Catholic worker, and mm -hmm. there's the direct service Catholic worker, and there's the, like, helping middle-class white people be less shitty Catholic worker. Um, Anti-nukes. There's the anti-nuke Catholic worker. There's the, like, do radical direct action. There's uh, a former Catholic worker by the name of Michael Harrington who founded uh, Democratic, so the DSA, like a movement that is, like, fundamentally committed to, like, what does the person in front of you need and how can I meet that need uh, can inspire good that is way larger than the, like, few people involved. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, I don't know. Inspirational. Well, it just helps me get a better measure of how we impact the world. The Federals. Where are the courts created, Aaron? The Federals. Sorry, what? In the Federals government. What did you write on your midterm test? I crossed out that the courts were created by the federal, the federal yeah, branch, was it? the federal branch of government. I had most of an F, and then I crossed out my F and I made it a J, because the federal is not a branch of government. It is the federal government. <laughs>